CNN.com ran this story some time ago. It said that after 17 years of marriage, Marion finally left Larry. It was a culmination of things, said Larry, but I am desperately trying to save our marriage. Marion left their home in Orlando, Florida, and went to her parents' home in Jacksonville. She changed her cell phone number so he couldn't reach her. Her parents blocked him from entering their gated community. So he sent her five dozen roses. His goal was to ask forgiveness, to plead for the chance for the two of them to work on their relationship. When none of those actions brought any response from his estranged wife, Larry took out a full-page ad in the Florida Times Union. The ad read, I can only hope you will give me the chance to prove my unending love for you. Life without you is empty and meaningless. The cost of a full-page ad meant that Larry sent Marion a $17,000 apology. Now, a relative told Larry that his wife had seen the ad. She said, my wife read the ad and started crying, he said. But so far, I've had no response from her. You know, when it comes to the primary relationship of our lives, our relationship with God, Scripture is pretty clear. Romans chapter 3 states that, that all people have sinned. All people fall short of God's glory, God's standard. All of humanity stands guilty of telling its creator to take a hike. That's the McCaslin paraphrase. And so the relationship with God is broken. Dozens of roses, a full page ad, extravagant efforts on our part cannot, they will not make things right with God. Nothing. But imagine this. What if God chose to offer forgiveness? What if God chose to love us even though we are the ones clearly at fault? What if God chose to pay whatever cost was necessary for us to have the relationship with Him restored? Can you even imagine such a thing? Oh. Oh, He did it. Imagine a God in the pantheon of gods throughout the world's history who does not demand payment from those who have offended him or even from those who have not offended him, just demands payment to keep him happy. Can you imagine such a crazy notion? Of course you can. That is exactly what Scripture declares that God has done for his people. And you know that, right? We do. We do know that. Okay. Knowing that, let me ask you a question. Are you amazed by what God has done for you in Christ Jesus? Now, if your answer to that question is yes, yes, I am amazed. Let me ask you another question. You ever talk about it with anyone? You ever share your amazement 
with God and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus with anyone? How amazed are we really? How amazed am I? Really? And, and here's, here's the kicker for me. I'm, I'm not even talking so much about evangelism and sharing our faith. We know that that is important. Witnessing that W word. What I'm really thinking more of is, do you ever talk about what God has done for you with other believers for whom he has done the same thing? When's the last time that you talked with someone very specifically here at Applewood about your amazement over what God has done for you in Christ? Now, you don't have to answer that. You don't have to put your hand up and say, I've done it. What I want you to do, so I want you to do just for a little bit this morning what my friends in Maine call Ponda. That's spelled P-O-N-D-E-R. I want you to ponda. I w- <laughs> it's not a ponda bear. That's right. I want you to ponda for a little bit this morning what it is that God has done. And I want us to ponder about the significance of, of speaking about what God has done for us in Christ and doing it together as God's people, both formally when we see each other here in a formal setting or when we are together over coffee, one another's homes. You remember last Sunday, we turned our attention to the second of four things in Acts chapter 2 that we are given a picture of what the early believers in Jerusalem were committed to. They were, they were devoted to four things, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And, and as we've said from the beginning, that, that word devoted, it carries with it a sense of urgency, a sense almost of, of kind of a life dependency. My, my life is really tied in to these four things, and therefore I am devoted to these things. The believers in first century Jerusalem found themselves living in a culture that, that was increasingly unfriendly toward their beliefs, their commitment to Christ as Messiah. And so they lived with a sense of urgency. This morning, we look again at one of the, the, the second thing that they were devoted to, the, the breaking of bread. Commitment to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Not a casual devotion. Uh, at least not in the glimpse of their life together that we see in, in Acts. I've asked uh, Lee if he would stand and read that Acts 2 passage for us, our, our primary text for this series. Listen up. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe as many wonders and signs before inside the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold the property and possessions to give to anyone who had them. Every day, they continued to eat together in the temple court. They broke bread in their home and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were in the temple. 
Thank you. I never tire of hearing that text. I just never do. You know that that's, that's my dream. That's, that's my passion. Um, I pray that that is who Applewood Community Church is becoming. Uh, not so that people think we are so cool, but so that God in His grace might bless us. Those words in verse 47. God added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. There was a, there was a sense, a presence of, of God and a, and a commitment to Him that somehow, I think, just captured the heart of God and people were drawn to Him through His people there. So last Sunday we gathered at the communion table. We were reminded of the words of Jesus to his disciples when he broke bread together in, in their, their last meal that they shared before his death. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this often. Remember me when you do this. We learned that bread was a staple of everyday life in Palestine. And we also heard the words of Jesus from John chapter 6 when he, when he spoke to the crowd that was around him. He said, I am the bread of life. And we also remembered that, that many of the people in that early church in Jerusalem had been with Jesus. The apostles were all there and there were, there were numbers of other people who had, who had been with Jesus in his physical life on earth. And so, so our primary point when we look at devotion to the breaking of the bread is to say that that whatever form that took in the lives of those early believers, whether it was the sharing of a meal and just a, a common loaf of daily bread or whether it was something more, quote, significant, something more official, something more like communion that we share together on a monthly basis, whatever the form I suggested to you that Jesus was always present in their hearts. And I think Jesus was always present on their lips when they met together and broke bread. You know, it was just days, weeks, perhaps after Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. And when he broke the loaf, he said, do this and remember me when you do it. It's just inconceivable to me that, that those believers would, would get together and do something that involved bread and not remember Jesus. They did. They remembered Him. They spoke of Him. They, they told stories and reminded one another of Jesus. I really think this is true. You want to know why I think this is true? You, you, you need to know why, because it's really the main point of my sermon this morning. So I'm, I'm hoping that you want to know why. Even if you don't want to know why, I'm going to tell you. Here's the deal. Thanks. Because Jesus, simply put, Jesus had changed, or at the very least, he had reshaped their concept and understanding of who God is. Yeah. He had changed, at the very least, he had reshaped their concept and their understanding of who God is. 
And, and here's the deal for us, brothers and sisters. I think this is where the application is. We, I think, need to be reminded of the same thing. Because it could be that, that our understanding of God needs to be reshaped. Our understanding of who God is perhaps needs to be changed. And there is no greater change, there is no greater reshaping force to inform our thinking of who God is than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, our text this morning is is Hebrews chapter 1. Now, this will come as a surprise to you, but I have a neighbor question that I that I have for you after we uh, after we read this text together. So I want you to listen closely to what you read. Okay, these will be familiar verses from Hebrews chapter one. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. A lot of speculation on who it could have been. We're not even sure where the recipients were that this letter was written to. However, we are very clear about the ethnicity of the recipients. The clue is in the name of the book. Okay? Listen closely. Let's stand and read together, all right? Okay, here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Can we put those up there again, Melanie? It's short enough. We just need to read this one more time, okay? All right. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Okay, wait a minute. Did you hear that? One more time. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You didn't say that very enthusiastically. Were you reading closely? Thanks be to God. Okay, go ahead and be seated. All right. Okay, what's the name of the book we just read from? Okay. Who were Hebrews? Okay, good, good. So what does this book tell us about, or this letter, I should say, tell us about who it was written to? Good, okay. You, you, you got the clues. Here we go. In the mind of the first century Jew to whom this letter was written, whoever it was, wherever he or she was, these words are like an earthquake. Now, we've, we've seen a lot of earthquakes Recently on 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 the world's landscape. It is a word that should bring to mind for us change. These words in the hearing of a first century Jew were an earthquake. Okay. Here's your neighbor's 
your, uh, your question for your neighbor. Where does this earthquake register on the Richter scale and why? Go ahead. Where does this earthquake register on the Richter scale and why? Okay, are we ready? All right, so. What size earthquake was this? What do you think? About 100. It only goes to 10, but yeah. (laughs) Say again. Does it go higher than 10? Okay. According to Jim, it goes higher than 10. Jim would know. <laughs> he builds big wind turbines that withstand earthquakes, right? <laughs> what do you think? Why? Why? Why is this such an enormous statement? Why is this such an enormous statement of change in the life of a first century Jew? Come on. Okay, that is true. That is true of many. Absolutely. Okay, what else? Allie. Okay, okay. God had always spoken through prophets. So this was a totally new thing. Jim? Purification was always through sacrifice. Man. Yes. Purification was always through sacrifice of an animal. And now it came through a human being. What else? What else made this so enormous? Cappy? Absolutely. Powerful change in the way that they had been thinking. Trace? Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are not just willy-nilly statements. Um, you can't miss the statement of Christ's majesty and authority, his greatness. Lee? Deuteronomy 6. Yes, yes. (laughs) Good, good observation. Yes. The Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Here is where the Lord our God is one God. And the language of Hebrews is suggesting, at least at first read, that there's something else going on here. What else? Anything else? The radiance of God in a person. Yeah. We'd all need sunglasses. Thank you, Dale. (laughs) Oh, my friends, when I suggest to you that the early believers 
remember Jesus, that their conversation included Jesus, I, I, I think this, this is what I'm getting at. Now, to be sure, there's, there's a lot of, of development of theology that comes over the years. You know, we could be talking about things here that wouldn't necessarily have been a part of, of their conversation, especially uh, those who were those early believers in Jerusalem early on, and yet they, had, they were recipients of God's Spirit, and they began to learn things and truths about God begin to unfold that they had never seen before because of the presence of the Spirit. We, we are recipients of that Spirit. So I want us to, to ponder the importance of this Consider who God is in light of Jesus' revelation is absolutely critical to our daily lives, to living as his followers. And and the conversations that we have together, I think, should be a a source of encouragement in that. They should be a a source of of hope in that. I was struck this week, you know, when when I'm thinking about the word conversation, the old English word conversation uh, means lifestyle, uh, the way that one lived. I think that's interesting. The truth about Jesus informs our conversation, and it also informs our conversations. Um, now, the truth is that there is just there's so much more here than than we can do in just a few minutes together. But what I want to do is, is I want to call your attention to two key groups of words here. Uh, and and Allie took us in that direction with her statement about God always speaking uh, through prophets in the past. First grouping of, of five words are those that are right at the beginning. In the past, God spoke. In the past, God spoke. Now, let's just talk out loud for a minute. Uh, help me with that. Who's, who's this letter written to again? Okay, and uh, Hebrews, Jews, okay, okay. Um, so, in the past, what does that mean? In the past, who's, who's past? Who's past? What past? The Jews' past. Tell me about the Jews' past. A long past, yeah. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. What else? Excellent. 400 years since they had heard from any prophet, i.e., since they'd heard from God. The close of what we know as Old Testament history in Malachi. What else? God spoke. What's that mean? God spoke. Yes, he spoke. Thanks, Joe. What was the point? What was the point of God speaking? To tell them something. What? Usually what they were doing wrong. Does that often seem to be the case? Yes. Let's be honest. Oftentimes, you know, I, I like to look down my nose at those, those uh, Israelites and think to myself, oh, man, if I'd been there, I'd have gotten it right. Yeah, sure you would have, guys. The writer says to our forefathers, God spoke. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The writer's saying that in the history of the Hebrew people, 
God was active. They knew this. God revealed himself many times through many different prophets, many different situations, many different circumstances. They knew this. The recipients of this letter would have understood that. And they could have listed numbers of times and names and places where God had spoken into their history as his people. The next grouping of five words, the beginning of verse two, but in these last days. But in these last days, the writer is introducing such an important contrast here. That's the point of the word, but the language is more literally on the last of these days, on the last of these days. It's an expression that that is often found in the scripture that relates to the days of the Messiah. And the writer is saying to these people who are receiving this letter, we are living in the Messianic age and things are different than they were. God is no longer speaking through his prophets at different times and in various ways. And some of them might have gone, boy, no kidding, we haven't heard from one for 400 years. Things have changed. He is speaking to us now in a new and very different way. Now he speaks to us. He reveals himself to us through his son. The world as they know it is shaking. The earthquake is building momentum. Oh, and by the way, the writer almost throws this in as sort of a P.S. This son is not just one more and better prophet. He just happens to be the radiance of God's glory. He just happens to be the exact representation of his being. I love what what N.T. Wright says about that statement. Give a listen. He's talking about the, uh, the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the shining reflection. That's a, the way that you can, you can translate, one of the ways you can translate the Greek word there. The shining reflection of God's own glory. He is the precise expression of God's own very being. He is, dare we say, not just a chip off the old block as though there might be many such people perfectly reflecting God's own inner being, but the unique son. Look at him. Look at him, and it's like looking in a mirror at God himself. His character is exactly reproduced, plain to see. That's the language. Does that just hurt your head? It hurts my head. That we see in Jesus the exact character of God. Now, it's at this point that the writers, or that the recipients of this letter are, are all going, but what about the past? It's gone. But what about the sacrificial system? It's gone. But what about 
the expectations that God placed upon us as his people back then. Fulfilled. Done. Accomplished. Complete. You see, we have trouble, I think, understanding the significance of this because we weren't there. But imagine, imagine life, especially in the pages of the Old Testament, that were just fraught with blood and guts everywhere you looked, all the time. The fires were burning near the tabernacle, near the temple, offerings to God for sin all the time. And suddenly, the way that we have a relationship with God has changed. Now, we in our New Testament sophistication, we understand that grace was always present. They didn't know that. You know, we have the whole Picture, start to finish, praise be to God. We look at that and we say, but grace was always there. It wasn't really the offerings that achieved favor in, in, in God's eyes. They didn't know that. At least not all. We're given hints that, that some got it. Do you, do you understand how significant this is? And the exact representation of God's being it uses a word in the language that's, that's hard to interpret. There's a lot of wrestling with it. It was, it was often used to describe the imprint on a coin, that, you know, more so than just a, a, a sketch or, or, or a drawing of some kind. The imprint actually had, had texture. You, you could feel it. The RSV translated this, this phrase as bearing the very stamp of his nature. That's what it's getting at. It has to do with, with substance. The idea that, that, that in Jesus we see what God's real being is. Boy, if you think I'm struggling with this, I am. I don't understand it. But I can tell you one thing. I am camped on the hope of it. That what we see in Jesus is the clearest picture of God's heart that we can have. That what we see in Jesus is the clearest intent of who God is and what He means for His people. Man, oh man. Simply put, if you really want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And you can hear the recipients of this letter saying, but what about the God back there? And the writer of Hebrews says, look at Jesus. Well, what about this? Look at Jesus. Yeah, but what about... Look at Jesus. Creates a huge tension for these recipients. Everything that we've ever known that is right to do in having a relationship with God is now in Jesus? This, this man? Yeah. This man who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is a huge earthquake. And I think where the earthquake really shakes is when it comes to that sacrificial system that we've mentioned. Because at the heart of the sacrificial system was the need to 
Repent for sinfulness again and again and again. And suddenly, in Jesus, in Jesus we are taught that that is no longer necessary. You ever study the book of Hebrews? If you, if you know what Hebrews is about, that's what the entire book is about. The entire book is basically saying all of that that was done for thousands of years was simply a shadow of what was to come, and it has found its meaning in Jesus. Wow. I've often wondered if I would have appreciated Jesus more, if I would appreciate Jesus more, if I had been a part of a time when Jesus had not been. I think maybe, maybe that's the crux of it for all of us. We're so familiar with Jesus. We know that it's, it's law back then. It's grace now. I, I love what Anne Lamott says. Grace, this is her definition. Grace means you're in a different universe from where you had been stuck. When you had absolutely no way to get there on your own. My brothers and sisters, our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, I think, needs to shape our conversation together as his people. Because there are just a gazillion ways in which we find ourselves falling back into law on a daily basis. Yeah, we don't sacrifice animals, but there are a lot of other things that we sacrifice. There are a lot of other things that we give ourselves to not ever really saying it this way, but, but thinking that somehow this will be more honoring to God. Somehow we will, we will gain God's blessing. We're going to go there next week together. Conversation part three that God's people have together. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And, and it's... It's an outrageous message. It's a message that doesn't make sense. Because in the heart, I think, of, of most every human being on the planet, there, you, you see it, you see it evidenced so often that there is an appeasing of the gods, an offering, a sacrifice, in order to procure the blessing of the gods upon my life. I think we still do that in more sophisticated ways. And when we do that, we don't recognize the reality of who Jesus is. And when I think the reality of who Jesus is begins to set into our lives, that's when we begin to understand and to live the life that Jesus calls us to. You see, you can't live life as a follower of Christ and still operate under the system of the law. That's why so many of his teachings are so hard for us to understand. And I think that's why so often we, we struggle in our lives, in our, in our daily walk with Christ. And, and my, my prayer is, is that we will learn some specifics about this, and especially as we, we move to next week, that will, that will help us to encourage one another in who Jesus is for us. On a daily basis. Jesus is not just good for us so that we can get to heaven. Jesus is 
good for a change of life here and now so that we might offer that change of life in Him to others. Amen? Amen. Praise Him. Why don't you come forward and prepare to lead us as we respond. Ron Dunn is a, uh, is a Christian writer and, and speaker. Tells a story about taking his son for his birthday to a, a local fair, a local carnival in town. And his son was allowed to invite, I think, six friends. It was a, it was a birthday party. And he said, so, you know, I, I bought a whole bunch of tickets for the rides, you know. And so at every ride that we'd come to, you know, I'd be passing out my six tickets. And uh, he said, we got to this one big roller coaster ride. And I'm passing out my six tickets and there's a seventh boy there. Ron says, so who are you? He says, well, my name's Jimmy. He said, so... What is that to me? And he said, well, I'm a friend of your son. And he told me that if I said that to you, you'd give me a ticket and uh, let me go on this ride. Got to be a friend of the son to find salvation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our ticket. To God, the exact representation of God's being, the radiance of God's glory. You know, if you're here today and, and you have never really understood what it means to be a follower of Christ, I sure wish you would talk to me before you leave today. I would love to be able to, to tell you what it means to be a follower of Christ and to find in Him the the answer to what I think is so often the heart's deepest longing, purpose in life and meaning in life, and why am I here? What's this all about? You know, like the Hebrews when they were asking, what about this, what about this? It's in Jesus. And uh, that's our answer here at Applewood. It's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. It's all about experiencing His love and His forgiveness. I hope that's true for you today. Thank mm-hmm. you.